holiday season, we're, we're going to kind of end a, a section of teaching that has been addressing life change. This is kind of a pivotal week for us. We will end here. Um, we have uh, Dr. Jim Cofield is going to be speaking with uh, for us next week. I'll be here, but he'll be sharing a message with us. And then the following week, we'll move into our first week of Advent. It's kind of hard to believe that you know Christmas is almost officially here. But this kind of signifies a break in this section of Philippians that we've uh, been studying. And we are going to look at this final message, if you will, in our study about the verse where Paul tells us to work out our salvation. Or with fear and trembling, if you've read the entirety of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And in case you're new today or visiting, the reason why we're looking at a teaching in John, this is a series in Philippians, but if you want to know why we're looking at a teaching in John while studying the book of Philippians, it's because we've been examining passages of Scripture that give us a greater clarity into what Paul says in Philippians 2 about how God brings about change in our lives and the responsibility we have in the process. You can simply describe it like this. We have been talking about how he, meaning God, and we work out the gift of our salvation once Jesus gives it to us. And so last week, we, we started a little two-week miniseries at the, uh, examining the role of the Holy Spirit and what he does in our lives to help bring change. And we learned some foundational truths. This is online, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you were not here last week. This is a standalone talk, but that certainly will give you a little bit of a backdrop of what we're going to talk about today. Last week, we identified that in the Gospel of John, that the Holy Spirit's main job is to lead people to God's truth in Jesus. He is not a cosmic force or an energy. He is a person, a member of God's Holy Trinity. And as a member of God's Holy Trinity, his, his primary responsibility is to help us know Jesus, grow in Jesus, to remind us of the truths of Jesus when we forget about them. He is our advocate, our second advocate, right? That's what we talked about. And so if you have ever wondered what a simple definition of spirit-filled Christianity is, uh, this is it. Spirit-filled Christianity is a Christianity deeply rooted in the person and the presence of Jesus. To be filled with the Spirit means you are indwelled, like Simon just said, our worship leader, you are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is living in you and bringing Jesus' life to you, and that is changing you. Now, up to this point, all of our change teachings have been largely concerned with how we as Christians experience deep and meaningful life change in our own lives. We talked about how those who do not know Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in their lives, how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of those who do know Jesus. This has been very introspective, you might say, up until this point. But today, as I promised last week, we're going to take a, a, a little bit of a, of a variable. We're going to examine a shift here. And I want to elaborate on the statement that said this. This is what I introduced last week and promised I would elaborate on today. While God wants to see change happen in your life, he doesn't only want to see change happen in your life. And so the idea is that the Holy Spirit wants to change you, but not just you. And with that in mind today, we'll shift gears one last time when it comes to life change. As we talk about the change God wants to make in other people's lives through you. Okay, Super important. Today we're going to talk about the work of God's grace that you and I are called to be a part of by sharing the gospel of Jesus with other people. What it means to bless other people um, with our words and our deeds in the name of Jesus. In fact, we can rightly say, speaking of change, okay, if the Holy Spirit is in us, and actively working Jesus' truth out in our lives, we should be somewhat compelled to want to see Jesus' grace worked out into the lives of others. One of the ways you are changed, let me put it this way, it's not just emotional satisfaction and joy and peace and hope and the fruit of the Spirit. All of the, the wonderful change promises we've looked at, it is that, but it is not just that. 
part of the burden God places on your life when you begin to know Jesus more deeply is a desire to see other people know Jesus more deeply. And this is really the first truth that I want to share with you today. That God gave you his Holy Spirit, right, to experience personal life change. We've talked about that a good bit. But also to change the world. This is the point of this talk. You have been assigned a segment of life based on your, you know, who you are, your gifts, your ability, your vocation, your educational disciplines. Whatever it is, God has placed you in a sphere of the world. And that is a part of the world that he wants to see change happen through you. And John 14, 15 through 17 is the, the subsidiary verse I'll read today connected to Philipp- Philippians chapter 2. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that's what we talked about last week, another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. So the Spirit of Truth, um, one of the truths he brings about in you is a desire to want to change the world. And I want to open by saying, if we are ever to see Christ-centered change in our world, in your segment of the world, then we must know that God has given every one of us a great change mission. There's something he's, he's assigned us to do. And the desire to be a part of, of a mission like this is a theme that dominates. It's a pervasive theme in culture. And anytime we talk about the mission of God, I highlight the very room that we sit in. And I'm going to bring it up again today. This reality of people desiring to be a part of something greater than themselves is perhaps best evidenced culturally in the place that we sit in today. This is a movie theater, in case you didn't notice. Um, It's not a cathedral. We don't have stone brick out front. This is a place where in about an hour, um, people are going to start watching movies. And in about an hour and a half, people will start watching movies in this room. And this is a great example of what we're talking about. The movie theater we're sitting in and worshiping God in right now, it, it really identifies with what we're saying. It highlights that people often look to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Something that makes a real difference in the world. And there are a great many ways that people can engage in that. But one of the things a movie theater shows us is that people often satisfy this void in their heart by coming to a place like this to watch movies that immerse them in this philosophy. They come here to see films on the big screen that actually engage them in a larger narrative of life. And I will give you a concrete example of this in my own life this past year. Um, This reality is for this year. I'm not a a film critic, but as far as this year goes, I think perhaps the best film that shows us this is the re-release of the Star Wars franchise that was relaunched uh, the latter part of last year. But, but really, they, I mean, they were showing movies in here through the first quarter of the year. That film was in the theater for like four months. It was amazing. And not just this theater. Theaters like this one all around the world. Okay, this was a, a, a movie that people were salivating to see. And I even fell prey to its allure because my son, my 10-year-old, was begging me to take him to see it. And eventually, I did take him to see it with one single caveat. I told him that we would go see Star Wars. He was asking me in December of last year, but I told him we would not go to see Star Wars until at least one month after the movie released. And you're probably saying, well, what, what's the logic behind that? Well, I want to explain. Here's the answer to that why question. The reason I, I wanted to see the movie a month after it l- released, at least, is because as a New Yorker, I have some particular rules of engagement when it comes to how I see and understand personal space in a movie theater. There's a reason these seats are blacked out. You've got to stay out of my zone up here, okay? So here's the thing. I'll never forget this. Uh, my, my uncle was an, an undercover detective for the NYPD, and he told me one time, I was like 12 years old, he said, Anthony, in life, people need about six inches of personal space. But he said, New Yorkers need like six feet. That's the way he said it. You've got to have zone around you. And so when people come to a movie, some of you are okay with having people sit next to you. But for me, 
I prefer at least a 10-foot radius of what I like to call a privacy zone, where, where nobody but myself and my family or the people I am with uh, are around me. And essentially, I want to feel like I'm, I'm watching a movie in my living room, um, with the exception of the fact that I can't do it in my underwear. That's the only exception in a, in a room like this, right? So when it, when it comes to how I see personal space, I, I, I want a bit of a zone. And uh, some people have different philosophy. Well, you're praising the Lord about the space or the underwear. I'm not sure which one, right? <laughs> so, so most people have a zone here. And so my solution to this problem is that we come a full month after Star Wars, and we're going to see a Tuesday matinee. It's like the lamest thing you could do. But I figured if we come here a month afterwards at a, at a 10.30 showing on a Tuesday morning, then my son and I would have the whole movie theater to ourselves, just the way I like it. And so uh, that was my plan, and it was not a good plan at all because I got here a month afterwards on that Tuesday at 10 a.m. for a 10.30 showing. Uh, and there was a problem immediately, I noticed. When I pulled into park 30 minutes ahead of time, um, there was already a line of people in front of the movie theater waiting to buy tickets. And if, it, to eventually what was a full room of people, it was astounding to me that there was still that much of a demand to see that movie a month afterwards. And immediately I felt defeated. And you might ask why, and I want to share with you. Because while, while I thoroughly enjoyed, I knew I was going to enjoy spending that morning, and then I took my son out to lunch that afternoon uh, watching the film, I knew that I now had to do it with many, many, many other people who I did not know, essentially sitting on my lap making entirely too much noise as they consumed large amounts of popcorn and Skittles. And that's what happened. I, oh, we had people to the left and the right of us. Now, what's the point of this, you might be asking? What, what, are you, what am I telling you about my, my personal nuances when it comes to how I see a film? Well, there is a point to this. And the point is, or the question we might say that proves the point, is why is it that a film like that has so many people still wanting to see it so long after it's released? And then when the film is out of the movies, okay, why do, well, let me, let me back up a second. You actually had some people that went to see that two, three, four, five times. So they were repeatedly seeing it. And then when it left the movies, <coughs> people bought it on Blu-ray. The same people then went out and bought that movie on disc. Why is it that there can be such a cult-like following to films like this? Well, it's kind of highlighting the human reality I'm talking about here. Movies like that, the ones that contain what film critics call epic themes, okay, almost always have a cult-like mass appeal. They almost always have these kinds of hordes or throngs of people wanting to see them. And these epic themes of these movies teach us something about the human condition. What people do here tells us something about the way God has created people. And the big point is that we pretty much all love a good story. And if you look at the premise of most popular books and movies, what happens is the, the details might change, but the substance of the story does not. It usually, as uh, in, in common, usually has a group of people who have to band together to accomplish some great task. Uh, there are cosmic themes of good and evil, struggle and trial. In many cases, it's the story of very common people doing very uncommon things when they get together. A couple of years ago, I pointed out the Avengers films. Uh, same kind of thing. We, we had to reorient our whole worship schedule around the Avengers because it took, it took the world by storm, right? So this is a great example of people wanting to engage in this narrative. They, they, they sense a story that immerses them, albeit for three hours, into something that is much greater than themselves. The reason we love films like this is because for many people, they vicariously get that mission need met by watching movies, by reading books. For a few hours of their lives, they become a part of that story. That's what a good movie does, right? You come in, you watch it, and then three hours are gone, and you're like, man, that was quick. That's a good movie, right? It's a real evidence that God has created every one of us to have a purpose that is much greater than our own, our own glory. 
And you can see this in a lot of areas of life. You can see this in kind of uh, in philanthropy. Uh, for time's sake, I won't go into a bunch of these details, but you can see great men and women in the business world, folks like John Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, right? These folks, Bill Gates, they, they come in essentially as, as gurus. They, they come in dominating an industry, steel, right, or software uh, or, or uh, oil. They come in with these great plans to make a ton of money. They dominate a business genre, and they do. But then at the end of their lives, these same people, they, they realize there's a bit of a hollowness to that. They want to do something even more. And so with philanthropy, which is another great example of the desire to be a part of something greater than yourself, great business people like this, eventually they arrive. They accomplish their mission, if you will. And then they realize that they're working in a world that is much larger than themselves. And so folks like this then dedicate themselves to different causes. They start saying, you know what, um, I want to help the world get a basic education. Or I realize in parts of you know, Africa or China or certain parts of the, the, the developing world, certain areas, there are still major problems with things like disease and malnutrition. And they desire then to take these resources and these assets and go be, be a part of a bigger change. They engage in a mission that, that is brought about in a different kind of way, if you will. And so if you start examining life, what you're going to see is those are the stories, whether they are in a room like this or in the world, uh, in the real world, these are the stories that we, we, we long for. They're the stories that make the news. They're the stories we want to be a part of. And so it, it causes us to ask a question. If this is a reality for us, and if, it's, if this, what we're arguing for today is that this reality of being a part of something greater than yourself is rooted in Christianity, for those of us following Jesus, we have to ask a question. If God is a great God who gives us a great change mission, and, and his Holy Spirit to help us accomplish it, the question then becomes, are we engaged in that mission? Are we aware of it? Maybe for the first time today you're, you're hearing this. Maybe this is the first time you've been challenged to think that God has a, a plan much greater than you uh, for his good and for his glory and for the good of the world. This is a mission, if you will, that begins when we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we are changed by the Holy Spirit through the truth of Jesus, and then that change causes us to want to help other people experience change. The change outside of you begins by the change that takes place inside of you. And according to Jesus, accomplishing this change mission is one of the primary reasons God gave you his Holy Spirit. He did not just give you his Holy Spirit to experience all those wonderful blessings and promises and fruit of the Spirit. All of that stuff should be driving us to this place where we start to live like what I'm about to speak about. In other words, one of the ways you, you work out your salvation is not just by focusing on yourself. It's by having a deep desire to help others work out their salvation too. And here is truly where the rubber meets the road for us and all that we have talked about over these past weeks. We've been very clear already that the main job of the Holy Spirit is to lead people to the truth of Jesus. This is what he advocates for. He challenges our mind and our heart to engage Jesus, to wrestle with our doubt, to experience him, to question things, and ultimately to make decisions about whether or not we validate Jesus Christ as our God, as our Lord, and as our Savior. And he does not do this in an abstract way. He does not use you know, crystals. He does not use inanimate objects or cosmic energies. He doesn't use any of that stuff. He could have used all of that stuff. But the platform God has chosen to reveal his truth to the world through is not an abstract entity. It is a concrete reality called people. People. You and me. The way God desires his truth to be perpetuated through the world is when people like you and me live in ways sacrificially and help others experience that truth. And so in short, he uses us. 
If you need the, the one sentence takeaway, God chooses to change the world through us. So when it comes to working out our salvation, we have to know we are not only responsible for our own well-being in Jesus, but also for the well-being of others who have yet to know Jesus. Because life-changing truth like God's grace is too good to be kept to yourself. I mean, think about this. The nature of grace is that Jesus does something sacrificially for us that we do not merit or cannot earn. He lives in a way for us when we do not deserve it. He becomes for us something we cannot yet be for ourselves. And so it is logically and theologically wrong to think that once we receive grace like that, it ends with us. It doesn't. It's the beginning of a, of a, of a rhythm of perpetuation is what I would like to say here. It's the beginning of then taking the attitude Jesus has displayed for us and showing it to other people by spreading his same truth, grace, love, and blessing to those who are without it. And this is why all of you who are in Jesus right now, I'm, I know some of you are, and some of you might not be, and some of you might be in the middle here. I don't know, wherever you are, I want to say if you are in Jesus on your faith journey, then you need to know that you are in Jesus because somebody took what I'm saying today seriously. And what I'm saying today is what Jesus has told us. He gives us this great mission. Somebody took seriously enough the fact that God cared about you enough and wanted you to be like his son. And so they told you about his son. And in God's ways, he discipled you into his kingdom and made you a son or a daughter of the living God. It's a serious fact, and our faith is an evidence of it. So as, as we move on here, I want you to know, we're talking a lot now about our responsibility in the change process with other people. And I want you to know that even though Jesus wants to change the world through you, that is a hope that we should take from this place, that God sees fit in you something amazing to use for his purposes. You have to know that the, ta the task of sharing Jesus' life-changing truth with people, it's a huge job that we cannot do without the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have to know, here's where, here's where these two ideas come together. God wants to use you to change the world. He does, in your own ways and influence circles. But you cannot change the world unless you press into the power of the Holy Spirit. So theologically speaking, this is why after Jesus ascends, right? Think about this. We're about to celebrate Christmas. But let's fast forward to Easter for a second. Jesus dies for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit comes to earth, we, we see that, that Jesus says, in my absence, my spirit will be with you. In other words, the kingdom now rests on the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus' return. And so contrary to popular belief, the Bible is very clear. This is one of the most challenging things that I think I see um, and truly at some point was even subjected to until God opened my mind up to it. I can remember thinking days, there were days when, when I was especially looking at God's work and pastoring and leading a church. <coughs> I would say things like, well, you know what, man, it must have been better for God's mission when Jesus was actually on the earth because he was right there. Um, it must have been better when Jesus was walking with the disciples and easier, maybe. But the truth is that that's actually not the truth. I'm not saying that that wasn't good or great, but I'm saying the Bible is clear that the most powerful displays of God's kingdom changing the world through people as we know it. They don't happen when Jesus walks the earth. OK, some of them happen when Jesus walks the earth. But the, the real change takes place after he leaves the earth. And he tells us that literally multiple times in the Gospel of John. He gives us these cryptic sayings. He says things like, listen, um, when I leave, somebody's going to come and you're going to do works great. You're going to do works in my name greater than, than when I'm standing before you. That's what he tells us or he tells his disciples. And that is the covenantal promise we live under today. After he leaves the earth, his Holy Spirit now works in the world. He actually tells us we'll do greater things in his absence than we will in his physical presence because his spirit is with us. 
And this is largely because the coming of the Holy Spirit means Jesus is no longer physically limited to just being around a handful of people on the other side of the world, his disciples. He is now in all of us, present in the heart of every believer, every continent, past, present, and future. It means that outside of us, the Spirit of Jesus, his Holy Spirit, is constantly working in the hearts and lives of people all around the world. Do you want to know why you should have confidence and boldness, a word we'll get to here in a moment, for the mission of God? You, know, you want to know why you should go out of this place, not afraid to labor in the name of Christ and bless people in his name when you provided the opportunity? Here's why. Because if you recognize that the Holy Spirit is already working ahead of you, that's going to create confidence in you. You're going to say, you know what, I'm going to follow where God is working and I'm going to work in those areas. If you leave this place thinking you've got to go out there and essentially change the world on your own or be Jesus to people on your own, you're going to get afraid. You're going to get to a place where maybe in for, a, for a season you'll get confident, but over time you'll do it absent from the power of God and you'll run your head into a brick wall. You have to know the Spirit is working ahead of you at all times in your own life and in the lives of others. He is preparing the world to receive truth. While, here's another great hope, while inside of us, he is steadily bringing about the skills and confidence, Christ-centered confidence we need to accomplish his change mission. He works simultaneously in us and around us. Now, there's a great irony in this reality. This is what we would call pneumatology. This is the study of the Holy Spirit. And there's an irony in who the Scripture says the Holy Spirit is, and oftentimes what we see in the world regarding the Holy Spirit. In a lot of circles, the work of the Holy Spirit is often equated with erratic emotion. But in Scripture, he's best known, most clearly known, for causing a deep sense of stability, a tempered sense of self-control in the hearts of his people, especially when faced with trial. What you see when the Holy Spirit, like, the Holy Spirit is in us, but when, the, when there's like this, this concentrated power of the Spirit, what happens is people that are afraid get bold. People that lack confidence are confident. People that are fearful about their situations, they start, they start having this Christ-centered reality in them. And what it does is it creates, it creates emotion, no doubt, but resolution. It creates a, a set of tunnel blinders, if you will, like where people then begin to focus on the power of Jesus, and they can actually do great and amazing things in his name. And in the case of what we're talking about today, for his mission. And so this really leads me to the second truth that I want to share with you this morning. We have to begin the morning by knowing God has given you and I, his Holy Spirit, to change us. And part of what he's changing in us is the way we care for and love other people. And this is really the bridge to the next thing I want to say. The last thing I want to say. So if you want to know whether or not you have the power of the Spirit in you like this, there is a, a bit of a litmus test that you can apply to yourself. And I would certainly encourage you to objectively invite other men and women who love God to, to dialogue about this with you. A lot of times we can be blind to the realities in our life while people who are around us are not. So one of the greatest marks of life change in you, one of the greatest marks that you got the first part of what I just said, is when you begin to have a boldness for Jesus' mission. The Holy Spirit is in you and creates in you a boldness to love others. So before we go any further, we really do need to define what we do and do not mean by boldness. Because that's a word, much like many of the, these, these traditional words that we use in Christian circles, it's important to recognize that we are functioning from God's definitional playbook. Okay? And this is because the word boldness, there are many, I call these hot potato words in the Christian faith, this is one of them. There are many words uh, that oftentimes have illegitimate connections to them. Boldness, without doubt, has created some really confused displays of mission in our modern culture. There are times, and keep in mind, what I'm saying now is this is not just a Christian issue. 
It can be. That's the one I'm most concerned with today. But boldness, like we're about to speak about in the negative sense, um, lots of people suffer from this. It can be arrogance or um, animosity towards another people. They might think they're bold, but really what they're displaying are inhumane attitudes towards other people. And so when we speak about this in the conduct of the way the Christian carries themselves, in mission and ministry, and what I mean by that is whether you are laboring for the sake of somebody who is in Jesus or laboring for the sake of somebody who is yet to know Jesus, we are called to the same code of conduct. And you are likely to get a different interpretation of what boldness means, depending on who you're speaking to. You're likely to get a range of opinions of what this is supposed to look like like in your life. And I'll give you the most unsettling one to me today. It's uh, If any of you read culture or news, have any of you ever heard of, it's a very small church, I think this will go to show you, this is kind of a, a nationally recognized church now that has about 20 Six people connected to it. Any of you ever heard of a little church in Texas called the Westboro Baptist Church? Okay, you know most people in our world have heard more about that church than they have ours. And we probably have five times, four times, five times the amount of people of that connected to our church here. So this is a very small church who disproportionately gets media coverage because of their vocal hostility and controversial statements about just about everything going on in culture. Listen, in about a week, we are, through a partnership um, with local business, we're going to bless our city by helping kids without Christmas have one. That will never make CNN this week. It won't. But if somebody in Texas says something negative about our church about that, they will get on the news. Disproportionate uh, coverage, right? So what happens here is um, they, I guarantee you, if you were to have a heart-to-heart with them, um, they would probably tell you that the reason they act that way um, is because they're taking a bold stance for God against the sinful nature of the world. And they tend to interpret boldness as mean-spirited, it comes across as hurtful, and oftentimes graceless. And I'd like to point out, that those attitudes of the heart are, are not boldness. They're anything but bold. In fact, I think you can make a very strong case scripturally that they're just a different kind of sin. It's like in the great prism of sin, you just turn it this direction and, and that's what you're de- dealing with. And that this is why it's so important for us to spend some time trying to understand what boldness looks like when it comes to the change mission God has given us in the world. And so let's briefly look at, uh, here's how we'll wrap up, a few minutes left, uh, two common ways people misunderstand boldness today. And then we'll end by giving a clear understanding of what boldness is, and just as importantly, an action step in how you can flesh it out in your life. Okay? So two negatives first. And keep in mind, these are not the only negatives, but we might almost consider them, these are the grandparents of all the negatives. Okay? Out of these two attitudes likely will be uh, bred all these other ancillary attitudes of, of uh, unhealthy boldness. First, boldness in God's economy is never arrogance. And what I mean by God's economy is when God looks at the world the way he wants things to function, that's God's economy. Boldness in God's economy is never, ever, ever arrogance. I can tell you in my, in my younger years, um, especially pre-Jesus, and I had to work some of this out in my own life when I became a Christian, um, I, I have always been a competitive person. I have always, I, I wrestled and was engaged in sports. Um, typically, when I look at situations, uh, I see them and the, my, my mind and heart say, how do you win this? That's how my life is wired. My kids joke with me. My wife makes fun of me. I can be very competitive about the most minute things. Like if, if we're going to have a race about who can eat supper most quickly, I'm telling you, I will funnel that plate down my throat. I want to win whatever it is. And so keep in mind, when we, when we, when we come to Jesus you know, there are things in us that God loves and uses and things that need to be sanctified. And I can remember, there's a point to this. This wasn't even in my notes. I just want to share it for honesty's sake. I can remember um, that left unchecked 
um, before I knew Jesus, especially when it came to argumentation, and I don't even mean the negative kind, like not argument like for the negative sense, but sitting at a table and debating in dialogue. I don't sit at that table with the thought of wanting to lose. I sit at the table with winning. And over time, I realized in, in Jesus that that could be a problem because it can be translated as arrogance. And I'm not, I'm not saying we don't proclaim truth or argue for it in a healthy sense, but I am saying I learned that there was a difference in, in sitting down with people and actually being right, but then maybe losing the platform to have another cup of coffee with them. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's like I could be right in an argument. I could have the truth, but I might be so hard in the way that I present it that I'm right now without a relationship with that person. And I'm telling you, thank, I don't think this has happened recently. I'm sure if it has, you can put that on the connection cards and we'll deal with that this week. You can turn that complaint in. But the point I'm making here is that sometimes with the, in the desire to have truth and share it, we can drift into lines of arrogance. And in the Bible and certainly in our world, arrogance, moral arrogance, or just plain old-fashioned arrogance, it has no place in the life of the Christian because it is truly a form of spiritual, of, of spiritual pride. And this is a pride. Think about this. Let's go back to our definition. Roll of the Holy Spirit, lead people to Jesus' truth, right? This type of pride, this type of arrogance, the, the example we just cited in Texas, it undermines the work of the Holy Spirit. Because when people hear that voice, it drives people away from Jesus, right? So the work of the Holy Spirit never drives people away from Jesus, at least not in the negative sense like this. Somebody might hear the truth of Jesus and say, that's not for me. That's their own decision. But when we are actively laboring in a way that it's pushing people away from Jesus, that's a problem. And the problem with being arrogant like this is that you start sharing truly life-changing truth with people, but they reject it, not necessarily even because of the truth itself, but more so the way that it has been delivered to them. And in the Bible, spiritual and moral arrogance, it's the main posture of the Pharisee. I mean, they use many motivational tools to bring about change in people's lives. Think about it. They use tools like fear, manipulation, judgment, shame, guilt, all to try to motivate and change the hearts of people. And anytime I talk about these negative change agents, I bring this up. You know, we always, we, most Christians, even if you don't know the fancy words for this, we know that Jesus' death on the cross for us, um, it, it, the, what we call propitiation, took away our sin. We know that he took away sin. But what we don't know as deeply is what we also call expiation. And that is he also took away these negative attitudes. So Jesus did not just die to redeem you. The, the other facet of the cross, if you start reading scripture of what the cross neuters, he neuters things like fear. The death of Jesus takes away judgment, takes away shame, takes away guilt. So you don't, you don't get redeemed from guilt and then use guilt to change. What you do is you are redeemed from guilt and you realize that now the motivation of loving Christ well is the driving factor that brings you to change. And so whenever you sense these types of things, whether it's an example in culture in your own heart or you're hearing it from somebody, we have to know these attitudes are not attitudes that are the work of God. In fact, Jesus is clear that the, the, they, they really are undermining it when you see it in extreme examples like the Pharisees. He boldly proclaims their methods are actually becoming an obstacle from keeping people seeing God, from seeing God. So listen, it seems like boldness. The person who can always step up and talk, the person who's never wrong, the person who likes to argue, that might seem like boldness. But in the case of the Pharisees or the, the church we just mentioned, that attitude in general, Jesus calls these things sin because they are rooted in pride, not, the, not an experienced grace. Listen, you can't be prideful in the Christian faith if you truly experience grace. You, you will at some point when the Holy Spirit works in your life, you will get comfortable 
with being inadequate before Jesus and completely adequate before Jesus. It's like this tension where you are worthless and priceless. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You cannot do anything. You, he basically says, you are not good enough for me. However, I love you immeasurably, and, and I can't, you can't do anything to keep me from, st- from stopping this love. When you live in that tension, it's like freedom. I'm telling you, it's freedom. And that's why if you're in that tension, you won't have this attitude. And I want to say something here. Um, this attitude, before we move on from it, uh, I hope you know me well enough now to know that I'm not like subversive in bringing things up. I would never use a talk like this to like back end address an issue in our church. I say this because by the grace of God, this is not an attitude in our church. Uh, I am incredibly thankful that our church does not suffer from this. It is perhaps the greatest thing when people visit or connect with us. This is the one thing they cite the most. They say things like people are just genuinely kind here. Uh, it, and it makes me happy to hear that, that there is a common ground that says we're all in Jesus and all growing in Jesus. And so this is not like me before Christmas trying to ruin your holiday or Thanksgiving. It's me basically saying this is an attitude we need to be aware of. But it is an attitude that by God's grace and the sweat of our brow is not a problem in our church. People love you. That's what we hear. It's not even like they love a program or an idea or a thing we do. They might connect to that. But most often what I hear is people love you. And I think that that is awesome. So this is a place where God has made change in this place. And as a church, I want to encourage us to keep up the good work. But I also want to challenge us to make sure we know this is a good work. And good works of the, of the kingdom are always targeted by the enemy. So we have got to have our, our, our spiritual awareness. We've got to wear our awareness cap and know that if we ever see weeds of arrogance arise, we have to pull them. Because arrogance is not a tool God uses. Humility and grace is. That's how the kingdom moves forward. And I just want to thank you for the fact that I do believe a great many of you get this, and it's encouraging to me. Secondly, another negative example, boldness in God's economy is never forcing a life change opportunity on somebody else. It doesn't mean like every one of you right now, okay, can think of somebody in your life and you can think of something they can change. Don't lie to me. I know it's true. Think about somebody in your life. Oh, you guys are shaking your head. You're like, no, not me. I'm very humble. Uh, But right now, if you think of like a spouse or a kid or a friend, you could probably say, here's one thing that just drives me nuts about this person, right? We have these things in our lives. This is called relationship. That's part of healthy relationship. There are things we see in people that are challenging and good. But here's what I want to say. We all, every single one of us are, 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 I like to say this not in the utilitarian sense, but we are change projects. Meaning God has a purpose and a plan for all of us. We are all, every single person right now at this moment, we are something not yet in Jesus. That over the course of our lives, Jesus will make us into if we'll pursue him. That's where the humility comes into play. I don't have to be you know, killed in my spirit because I'm not yet this, this in Jesus. But I can have hope that Jesus can make me this in Jesus, whatever that is. Whether you need to be more patient or self-controlled or, or generous or sacrificial. I don't know. We all have our areas. But the key is we all have them. And so... You have to be careful to not see change. You have to be careful of not becoming the Holy Spirit. I guess that's what I'm saying. You aid people in the change process. You can support them in it, but you can't make them change. And so if you've ever seen or experienced this type of truth sharing, you know it kind of feels totally unnatural. And that's because the heart of this behavior finds its root in seeing people as a utilitarian project, not a person that God deeply loves. And consequently, what happens is this person, the person who who is forcing change in people, they tend to love the idea of bending another person's will 
to look more like Jesus than they actually love the person. Let me clarify to another level. They're more concerned with the change outcome than they are the person. That's a problem. We should be concerned with the change outcome, but the root of our concern should be for the person. That's where it begins. As a result, it comes across more like relational badgering rather than a genuine concern. I think one drives a person away from relationship. And in one sense, we might go back to the analogy I gave earlier. You might be right. You might be absolutely right. Like you can show it in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians says this and your life is not this. You might be right in that. But if you force that, what happens is they might get pushed away to the place where you're not engaging them to engage Jesus's truth for the purpose of them becoming more like Jesus. That is a problem. So I think there's a fundamental issue here. There's a theological issue. When you understand the way Jesus works with you, there is a, a very strong sense of unconditional love. In other words, Jesus receives you as you are. That's how you come to him. But he also loves you too much to leave you that way. And this is the part of the process of what it means to pursue Jesus. You are received as is. No questions asked. But because Jesus genuinely loves you, he will spend the rest of his days shepherding you into his image. And the same has to be true with the way that we treat people. We cannot force people into a new image. We can, however, shepherd their hearts and encourage them in Jesus' truth and challenge them at times to become more like Jesus. This is the great task of disciple-making. The issue with this type of false boldness, forced change, is that it uses a cold and loveless tactic to set up the opportunity to introduce the warm love of God. And, and it creates a disconnect in a person's life. In some senses, people who see God's change mission like this actually remove the power of the Holy Spirit from the equation. They become the Holy Spirit. They become the agent of change. And what ends up happening is they will prematurely try to force an opportunity. And I'm not saying there are not times when we do need to be bold in the traditional sense, where we do have to stand in a place that matters deeply. But I'm saying if you recognize that the kingdom moves forward with the Holy Spirit and it doesn't move forward without the power of the Holy Spirit, then we would be wise in trying to sense the rhythms of the Spirit when He is working. We would be wise to follow the places He is leading because you then go behind the authority of God and not your opinions at that point. If we have this other attitude, people will naturally, and I would even say at times rightly, pick up on that as being inauthentic, not bold, not biblical boldness. So you, we cannot be arrogant and we cannot force change. But there is something we do need to do boldness like this is talked about in multiple places in the Bible. And so I don't want to end you with, you with you this morning with two things we shouldn't do. I want to end with what we should do. This you might consider is also the grandparent of all of the ways that we labor for God, his change projects, his agent. Biblical boldness is this. It is simply recognizing the gospel opportunities the Holy Spirit puts in your path and having the courage to pursue them. I'm going to say that again. What biblical boldness is, is recognizing the Holy Spirit's always working in the world. And if you believe that, he has opportunities in front of you. He's put people and places in your path. And if you have the spiritual aptitude to sense that, then all you have to do is act upon them when, when, he, when he shows you that need. And let me give you some, some um, vague examples and then a personal example. It happens, for example, when you're talking to a coworker facing a trial in life who needs hope. You sense that something's up, and you sense there's a challenge or an emotional need, and you meet that need. Or when your children need advice on how to find their identity in the world, they go to school, you know, you probably deal with this on a regular basis. You tell them you love them more than anything, and God loves them more than you could ever love them. And then they go to school, and kids tell them the contrary. 
and then they come home. You got to deal with that. That is a place to be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To help your children understand, to correct a lie when, when it is presented to them, and to present the truth of Jesus. It happens when you get to know the people on your golf course. I hate golf, you know this, and I love the fact that many of you love golf. Ben, you're there for a reason. There are people who you hit balls with and hang out with that, that need to hear something. And when you sense this, you should be Jesus for them. Or whether you're coaching a sport or whatever your hobby is, it is in those moments when you get to know people, when you have relational capital, that, that God begins to give you insight into their lives and how you can best love them in the name of Jesus. It happens when someone says something uh, or does something that acutely draws the attention of your heart to the Holy Spirit. You hear something, and it's like a light switch is thrown in your heart. This is when we, we act. One of my favorite examples of this, I shared this in the first year of Restoration. It's about six years ago. Um, when I've done a fair, actually quite a bit of flying in my life. Um, there were a couple of seasons in, in my work where I had to do it more often, and now I have a, what I call a balanced travel schedule. It's about four times a year, and I much prefer it that way. But I remember many, many, many flights um, from Orlando to New Orleans. It's like two two to three hour flight, depending on turbulence and all that stuff. And anyways, I flew that leg a lot when I was living in New Orleans. And I remember uh, the more you fly, especially if you fly a good bit, you start to get a sense for people who fly frequently and folks who do not fly frequently. And this is especially true if you're in the Atlanta airport where you just have to essentially run people over to get where you have to go. If you, if you try to be polite in an airport there, um, people will just take advantage of you. And so there is a code of conduct when you travel. And the same is true on a, on a plane. Um, what I've noticed is that people who fly infrequently, they, get to, they tend to get very freaked out when there's a lot of turbulence. But if you fly regularly, you start knowing like what normal turbulence is and then what the freaky stuff is. Well, there was one particular evening I was sitting on the plane and we were taxiing um, and I was sitting. It was one of those little two seaters. I was sitting next to um, an older woman who was evidently jittery. It was very obvious she was nervous and we were not even doing anything like, you know, we're in that taxi taxi mode. And um, we are um, about to take off the engines rev. And I mean, we get about three seconds into the that initial thrust and she grabs my hand like I mean grabbed it like this like we were married or something and um, and I had a lot of sympathy with that I mean again I don't want to be touched I already shared shared that with you earlier but I got to take one for team Jesus here and um, and she's grabbing my hand very tightly and and the plane is now you know uh, taxiing up to about 180 miles an hour to get off the ground and I just put my hand on top of her hand like this until we took off um, and then when we got uh, to that place, you know, there's like three or four minutes of that steep incline where it feels like your ears are about to blow out of the back of your head. I kept my hand there until we, we leveled at about 10,000 feet. And then I took my hand off of her and I asked her if she was okay. And she just spilled the beans immediately. Thank God it was just the metaphorical beans about her fear of flying. And so this to me says, well, I've got somebody now talking about fear, fear to me, right? Fear is not a, is a tool of the devil. Fear is a tool of the devil, this kind of fear. And so I'm listening to her, and, and I'm just essentially knowing I'm going to talk to her because we got about a two-and-a-half-hour fly, flight ahead of us. And I recognize that fear of the plane is actually not the root of her fear. Um, most of you know if you're afraid of flying, it's not because you're afraid of the plane. You're afraid of what happens to your life if it hits a mountain, right? And so, so I said to her, well, are you really afraid of flying, or are you, like, afraid of death? And she said, well, I guess now that you put it that way, I'm, I'm mortally afraid of the fact that this plane crashes and then I'm dead. And I, I, I wasn't like, well, let me tell you what Jesus says about this. I wasn't going that route with her. I said, listen, that's a pretty legitimate fear. I said, a lot of people are, are afraid of death. 
And I said, I have days when I'm afraid of it. And frankly, um, I, I, I try to introduce the gospel here. I said, I am no fear of death, uh, no fan of death. Don't get me wrong. Death is never easy. In fact, I find it gets harder as you start losing people like my, my grandmother last year. It's very hard when people die. Um, so I said, I'm not a fan of death, but over my life, especially knowing Christ, God has, has worked in me and he's helping me to understand. He, I don't think he's totally removed the pain of death. But he's removed its sting. That's what that's what Paul tells us in Corinthians. Right. And what I was telling her is I have less of a fear of it. And the reason I have less of a fear of death is because the more I get to know the God of life, the less I have to fear, fear death. There is a spiritual reality here. And she was intrigued. And we talked about life and death for about an hour and a half. Now, I wish I could tell you that when we landed I found a dirty, you know, fountain term, fountain in the airport, and I baptized her right there. And she came to my church two days later, and was like a deaconess, and was running. None of that happened. I've never seen this lady again. I since that day, and hopefully, Lord willing, maybe she's in Jesus right now. I don't know, but I sensed a place for an opportunity, and I also sensed a place where I was going to start forcing something. And at that point, I, I, I truly trusted her life with with God. Um, and I knew that my time in that moment was was over. So what happens there? And please, this is not a look at me story. This is a this is just a story to show that there are just natural opportunities that are going to pop up if you're aware of them. Um, this is a place where she is saying, I'm so afraid of death. And you have Jesus saying, I know that. Let me tell you about life. That's when we act. OK, it's a great example of the Bible teaching that God's Holy Spirit is at work everywhere in the world at all times. Um, and, and sometimes you might sense he's not at work there. So, you know, read your book on the plane. But if you get that incident or ones that are more subtle, act on them. But don't do it in a way where you're forcing or pressuring. All I'm saying is if you are faithful to pay attention to the work of the Spirit and act, I promise you will see God work. That's the way he's been doing it for several thousand years. And there are opportunities every day in every place and all around you. So if you're paying attention to them, uh, you'll see them. And I want you to, as we close this morning, to ask God to help you see them. So as we close, ask yourself this question. As we wrap up this change block, how seriously are you taking the call to be something new in Jesus? Maybe you're saying the thought of talking to somebody about Christ or blessing them in his name is paralytic to me. That's a place where Jesus wants to change you. I'm telling you that right now. How do I know that? Because he's basically said your life, your life and your workplace or wherever you are is how he wants to work. He wants to change that. Are you receptive to that? And are you receptive if you've experienced that to helping other people know grace like you have? As you contemplate this, I want to issue you an action step. That's your internal step this morning. Ask yourself, where are you with change in God? And where are you with helping others experience change? But I want you to put some tangible teeth to this. And I'll probably mention this over these next weeks. This week from now to the second week of January, I don't know why it is. I can give you my sociological reasons, which I will spare you of today. But right now what happens is the, the light switch of spirituality for our culture is about to be tripped. For these next eight weeks, people think spiritual. And when I say spiritual, I'm not saying Christianity. Some might be thinking that. I'm saying spiritual is on the mind of people. This season evokes that. And so right now, I don't want you to just ask yourself if you are willing to embrace what I'm talking about today. I want you in your your contemplation time this morning to ask God to identify no less than three people in your life right now that you can begin praying for and blessing in the name of Jesus. There are people in your life right now that God has put in your life for a reason. So certainly ask God to bring boldness about in you in your own life. But ask him also who he has for you to invest in over these next weeks. 
Who is it that you make a spiritual deposit in? A, a gift, a sacrifice, a, your shoulder to cry on. Ask yourself, is it time to start investing in the life of a person and inviting them to see the body? As they start thinking about this season, is it time to invite them to worship with us? Invite them to a community group? Invite them to a service thing going on in our community? Whatever it is, is it time to invest in the life of a person and invite them to see the family of God? And I want to concretely argue for the fact that it is. Pray about that. Ask who God has put in your life and notate that somewhere and then labor over that over these next weeks. It is my earnest prayer that over this encroaching holiday season, you will make it a real priority to sense grace and to spread it. So for the remainder of our time this morning, as we are in response, ask God how well you understand the role of his Holy Spirit in your own life and the role in the lives of other people. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about how he's working out your salvation with fear and trembling? And what is it that you are going to do about it as you leave this place this morning? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, for, thank you for grace. And thank you, Father, for the fact that you have been showing it to people for millennia. Thank you, Father, that for those, there are people in this room who have experienced the common grace of your Son. And I pray, Lord, that if that is us, that we would not take that for granted, that we would recognize your goodness, that we would recognize who you are, and that we would live our lives in light of that. I pray too, Father, for those in this room who may be questioning grace. Maybe you are not a Christian at all thinking about these truths. Or maybe you are a Christian who is numb and apathetic to these truths. Wherever you are, whether we are robustly pursuing Jesus or far from him right now, I pray we would know that if we pursue you, if we bring this to you with a heart of humility, your response to us is always goodness and grace. You will help us, God, to become what we are not yet in you. And I pray that the common tie that binds our whole church body here is that we are all we all have room to grow in your son Christ. May the humility of that reality be comforting and may it drive us to pursue the great prize, the calling, the high calling of being a son or a daughter of God. And I pray now, Lord, as we, as we move into our, our response time, that you would just help us to reflect and meditate on the things we've spoken about this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.